welcome to episode 21 of Literary Disco. We the animals. In this episode in two parts, we'll begin with our usual bookshelf revisit, in which Todd, Julia, and I take something down from our bookshelves to discuss. Then we will be joined by guest author Elizabeth Crane, who selected the collection of short stories We the Animals by Justin Torres for us to read. It's a novel, though. Is it? Is it a novel? Is it stories? We don't know. We will talk about Stay it. Stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me are essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Welcome, guys. Hello there, sir. Hi. Um, I would like to start because I have a very odd bookshelf revisit okay. this time. Um, it's an actual book, and I'm actually revisiting. So there's a great author that no one's, none of you have probably ever heard of named Steve Aby. Um, he's sort of a, an L.A. Uh, institution, if you... Um, Go to lots of spoken word type things, which I don't, but uh, or things where there's unusual authors performing. He he's been writing books for at least a decade, um, and his first book was called *The Bus: Cosmic Ejaculations of the Daily Mind Ooh. in Transit* um, in 2001. <laughs> I want to cosmically ejaculate. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I've, I've known him for for many years, but hadn't seen him in a long time, and I ran into him. I asked him what was going on, and he said, oh, man, I just got the worst book review in the history of book reviews for my new book. And I was like, oh, that's impossible. You're a great writer. And he's like, no, man, you got to read this review. It's the worst review that's ever happened. And so I pulled it up on my phone. And so do you guys want to hear the review of, of yeah, the book? Yeah, sure. This is from Publishers Weekly. Johnny Future, the drugged-out narrator of AB's abysmal latest, lives on a scuzzy sketch of Hollywood Boulevard. After a night of recreational NyQuil drinking, Johnny visits a friend and has the first of several hallucinations that will plague him throughout the novel. His wastoid adventures are the stuff of adolescent fantasy. He consumes many drugs, has many experiences, lands a job at a sex shop, and ends up on a wild adventure with a stripper named America. Despite (laughs) self-assessments like I'm Johnny Future, small parking lot, good creature of the sun, friend of man and beast, taco stand of love, he remains a cipher, and the novel rests artlessly on his shoulders. The supporting characters fare no better and seldom rise above caricature. Paraplegic transvestite baby juice is paraded for shock value. What does And that... America is a cliched vagabond Madonna whose sudden soulful connection to Johnny is predicted by a fortune teller. This disorganized mess goes nowhere interesting and says nothing oh my new. God. Wow. And I was like, holy shit! That is the worst review I've ever read. It also sounds like a book I would fucking love. <laughs> it totally does. I want Ryder to play Baby Juice in the movie. And, and so I, I'm like, holy shit, Steve. So I go to the bookstore and I buy the book and I was like, I, I got to read this shit. And I read it and it's 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 just exactly what it sounds like, but it's fucking great. It's weird and sexy and fucked up and drugged out and it's noir as hell. And, you know, it's like a punk rock song and spoken word poetry and a crime novel all wrapped into one. And it is not the, it is the victim of a bad review, but it is not the result. It is a, a fun, bizarre, strange book. And the first thing you see on Amazon is this crappy review. So, I want to stand up and say Steve Aby's Johnny Future is a fucking great Aww. book. As weird as shit, and you need to go buy it because he's one of those writers that not enough people know about. And a review like that 
if you just stumble on him on Amazon, you're not going to buy the book. So you're, you're hearing it from me now. Go check out Steve Aby. Go check out Johnny Future. It's a bizarre slice of L.A. fiction. That's my bookshelf. Wow. I have to check Bam. it out. Bam. Totally you just it. threw the mic down. That was my yeah, no Drop the mic. Walk out with an ejaculation <laughs> on the bus, yo. But, but you know, it, I mean, I received some bad reviews in my life. And... I know that bad reviews stay with you forever with the internet now. And so something like that, man, it, it just, it makes me crazy a little bit um, because he's, he's, you know, he's a good independent writer. Oh, I forgot about another book of his called King Planet, which was a short story collection that came out in, uh, in the 90s. I forgot about that one. Um, anyway, but he's, you know, he's one of those writers that not enough people know about. And, you know, here, here he's swinging for the fences and you get something like this. And it stays with you. Now, I'm, I'm no less guilty of these things because I review books for a living. And I just reviewed a book I hated and said horrible things about it. But it, it doesn't give the full picture sometimes. What about you, Julia? What did you well, read? Well, um, I'm currently reading, so I haven't finished it. But um, so, all right, here's a little background. Uh, one of the major points of Todd and my bonding is that Early in our friendship, we had both heard this crazy rant about how bananas, as we know it, <laughs> are, are doomed. doomed. They're doomed. It really upsets us They're both. Um, <laughs> They're doomed. And, um, you know, this guy, he, and, I mean, guys, this is a PSA. Bananas are doomed. Uh, they're genetically identical. They... They're going away. Get used to the plantain because it's coming. Um, but anyway, so I, <laughs> I love once in a while, I will just get really into a book that's just total pop psychology or some sociological thing like that. And right now I am reading, because I like to talk about these things at dinner parties. Um, so I'm reading this book called Willpower. It's basically an amalgamation of all the studies ever done on willpower and what they mean and, you know, what, what, how we think of willpower socially, but how physical it is. And all right, so let me just, I'll get right into it, guys. We have an extremely finite amount of willpower and you can waste it doing all kinds of things. So, Hmm. you know, if you are, if you use it up on things like suppressing emotions or making decisions, you can't do other things or you can't do do those things later. So it's really cool. It's just like describes all these different studies done. Um, Uh, That doesn't, hold on. I've never heard of this before. This doesn't really make sense to me. So if I'm like using willpower to say diet, Mm -hmm. right? Like I'm using my willpower to not eat. Great example. That is using up something that I then will give in to something else that I don't want to do. Exactly. Or, or, not be able to do something that I want to do well, because I've been using all my willpower to So eat here's less here's an example of some of the studies. So one study is like they put them in a room and they have to make all these choices about like making their own computer and select all these things on the Dell website which as we all can imagine is horrible. And then they'll put them in a room. <laughs> they'll put them in a room with like a cookie or a cupcake and the people who had to make their own decisions will eat it much faster they they're just like ah fuck it it's basically this book should be called <laughs> fuck it it's like you spend a lot of time doing that. something you will just be like so sometimes they'll do a difficult puzzle that's impossible to solve but they'll work on it for much shorter because they're like oh fuck it i'm tired from so, something else so, hold, so is that like related to someone when they're gambling and they've already lost a bunch of money and they say oh fuck it i'll just you know i've already lost 25 bucks i might as well lose 50 yeah or, or is i it- mean 
Uh, okay. I mean, it sounds to me like it's more like energy. Like you just run out of it, like it takes a lot of energy to do these things. So when you're using energy to do other things, it makes it harder to. Well, that's exactly what it out. is. That's exactly what it is. Okay. So, but it's the same. Like we think of willpower as something that we can just decide to have or get more of or make ourselves do things. But if you're if your energy is drained from something else, you're going to have a much harder time doing it. And dieting is actually a huge huge problem because obviously where energy comes from is glucose and if you're dieting you're just totally fucked because you're you need mm. willpower that you're not giving yourself so it's really interesting, oh, interesting. so it's uh, so like they just the uh, part that i just read was um so if people do something in front of a mirror they're just much better behaved they have this you know image of themselves that they want to uphold like <laughs> the self-reflection of the mirror like you won't eat two cupcakes in front of a mirror you'll eat one cupcake in front of a mirror even if it's I'd just eat, you there i would alone. eat the shit out of two cupcakes in front of a mirror <laughs> you bring me two cupcakes right now <laughs> hey guys uh th- this is important for our audience i saw a video on the internet recently that a friend of mine made me watch of a man unwrapping a cupcake from its uh, foil wrapping using his penis. Oh it was uh, the most remarkable thing I've ever seen. And you guys we in literary disco land. Todd Goldberg's you, bookshelf you need to, you guys, you guys need to see this. It's amazing. It was the result of a bet. And so he did it. He could, he used... He he could use the aid of only chopsticks. <laughs> Julia, if you want willpower, if you want to, if you want to yeah. see where your willpower rests, try not to Google un- "I unwrap a cupcake with my penis." dot com or whatever. <laughs> okay. The hell it is. Also, I want to see your internet history someday. Oh yeah, it's filthy. Oh my god, <laughs> it's a lot of it's a lot of pastries and a lot of organs. <laughs> All right. Well, that's disgusting. Ryder. Uh, speaking of pastries and organs, uh, no. All right, my um, my book is a. We haven't really talked that much about political books. T- uh, well, we have a little bit. Todd has brought up some some overtly political books, but uh, I decided to pull out one of my favorite uh, political fiction books. Uh, it's a novel called American Woman by Susan Choi. It's it's a really cool book. It's about. I love uh, one of my favorite subjects is. Uh, the uh, the countercultural movement of the 60s and 70s and not really just the movement but also it's kind of you know it's it's dissolution and how we perceive it now and this book is a great book it's about it's based on Patty Hearst when Patty Hearst was kidnapped by the Sibonese Liberation Army am I saying that correct yes, is that what it was SLA yeah so when Patty Hearst um, who those of you SLA. who don't know the whole story she was she was kidnapped by a like a leftist anti-government organization or group of radicals in uh, the early 70s and she she was kidnapped and she disappeared for a while and then she showed up robbing a bank with them and it was this huge cultural moment that she had somehow you know not only been kidnapped but then had joined these people but there's the true fact that she disappeared for a year and nobody knows where she lived for a year with these people and it's called the lost year and so this book is a fictional account of that year. What people seem to know for sure is that this Japanese-American woman helped house them somewhere and hid hid 
Patty Hearst and a couple of her kidnappers for this year. And so Susan Choi writes a book from the perspective of this Japanese-American woman. She fictionalizes it and creates this character named Pauline, who is, you know, the heiress to a huge newspaper fortune. So it's pretty direct uh, fictionalization. And it's just this great rumination on the end of the counterculture because she herself is an is a radical who obviously has been tapped into these networks of people who have bombed buildings or been anti been part of anti-government protests but now she's been kind of living this farm country life in upstate new york and suddenly she through her old contacts is given these people to house for a while including the, the patty hearst character pauline and it's just they just end up hanging out at this uh, farmhouse while they train with guns and prepare for like this coming war that of course is never really going to happen and it becomes this great interrogation of the ideals of that the left movement at that time and how whether these radicals are willing to continue their fight or not and it's just an amazing book it's cool because there's not a whole lot of action in the book it's mostly just a, the, the, the conversations and the characters surrounding the most exciting action of this time period, um, which may sound a little boring, but it's, it's actu actually, to me, way more interesting that way. It's just, and it mostly becomes these two women, the, the main character, the narrator, and the Patty Hearst character, Pauline, hanging out and confronting the ideas that turned her into this radical. Um, anyway, if anybody's interested in, like I am, in that period, it's a great book to check out. Wow, that sounds awesome. I, I don't know if this is true for you, Ryder, and also, it, you know, you were younger, but when I was a kid growing up in the Bay Area, Patty Hearst, it was, it was like, it was constantly being talked about because uh, it was happening in the Bay Area. Yeah. And so, you know, as a kid, like, I just remember sitting around the table and hearing my brother and sister talk to my mom about, you know, what do they believe about Patty Hearst and, yeah. you know, what's true and what's not true. And there's this whole mythology that I remember as a child, I can almost, uh, this is going to sound weird, but I can smell Patty Hearst. Like, I, right. I, when I hear <laughs> yep, the name. Yep, that sounds weird. <laughs> <laughs> like, when I hear Patty Hearst, I, I am, just the words Patty Hearst, I'm brought back to my family room yeah. in Walnut Creek, California, sitting on the shag carpet, listening to my brother and sister talk about it. And, you know, it, it smells like Nerf footballs and whatnot. It's, it's, it's it, that strange yellowed path. I think it's really hard for us to wrap our heads around something like that happening nowadays. Um and that's part of why I love this book is because I mean it's the equivalent of you know Paris Hilton getting kidnapped and then right. helping mm -hmm. her kidnappers rob a bank and you think about yeah. like what that would be like you know for a culture to go through and it, it just it was you know it was a period of crisis in American history that now it all seems so safe and sort of distant but the truth is it was it goes along with Helter Skelter and that sort of mm -hmm. like this really the happened and this really stuff. happened yeah. this recently um, just a great great book um that examines that whole period and and really it's not even just the period it's it's the fact that that period faded away you know that's what this book mm -hmm. is really about is that that all these people were screaming in the streets and and killing other people or bombing people mm -hmm. or taking guns for causes that now are pretty pretty much gone or became part of the mainstream uh, conversation politically that we don't we don't look at them as extremists you know the extremists in our country yeah. now are right wing we don't have i don't extreme... even i don't remember what the sla was fighting for <laughs> i have no memory of, of what it is they believed right in. which goes to show but even but you know even like you know bill Ayers and the weatherman and all that stuff i, I read this stuff. i read a fascinating article that i guess came out last year about 
Bill Ayers. So for those of you who aren't familiar, Bill Ayers um, was a was in the Weathermen, which was a a um, I guess they're sort of a terrorist group. Um, yeah, they and, were a leftist uh, terrorist group. Le- leftist yeah. terrorist group. They blew up some stuff. And when President Obama was running for president the first time, one of the big things was that they said he piled around with terrorists because he had a political function in Bill Ayers' home in Chicago. So for those of you who were 14 when Obama ran last time. So uh, there's an article that Bill Ayers wrote shortly after uh, Andrew Breitbart died. Is that how you say his name? The the conservative reporter? Um, about how he had put up for auction a, a dinner in his home to support um, some arts programming in Chicago. And the conservative uh, journalist Tucker Carlson bought it and brought Andrew Breitbart and two other people to Bill Ayers' house for dinner. Wow. Um, and he writes an article about, you know, just sort of what a lovely evening it was. You know, they just talked about big ideas. And, and Carlson and Breitbart, of course, had spent, you know, the last eight years calling um, Bill Ayers the worst person on earth. It's a fascinating yeah. article. I'll, I'll find the link to it and I'll put it up on the Facebook for those of you that are interested. But it, it's an interesting story about, you know, where, how people change mm-hmm. also. But also about how common civility oftentimes takes over. If you have to sit down and eat dinner with someone, you're not as likely to call them, um, you know, a, a terrorist. Oh, if, absolutely. If they're, if they're eating mashed potatoes next to you. It's wow. a weird thing about our culture that you're going to be polite even to your worst enemy if you're having dinner with them. Mm-hmm. So we'd like to invite all of our listeners to dinner at Ryder's house tonight. <laughs> Let's do it, guys. Yeah. I love I loved the whole story of the Weatherman Underground um, and... Growing up, I mean, I knew people who would house those people. Like, they were, you yeah. know, because they were living, I think Bill Ayers and a couple of the other weathermen lived off the grid for like decades. <laughs> like, they yeah, were in hiding. Yeah. And they would move yeah. from house to house, and it was called the joke. So, if you were in on the joke, that meant that you were part of the group of people hiding them. Oh, and wow. so there was this, and it was a big, big thing in the Bay Area and in Los Angeles. It was mostly in California. I think that they were they were in hiding. And so yeah, it was like, are, are you in on the joke? And that was like the code phrase of knowing whether people were hiding people. It's really interesting. Yeah. Wow. And now I think everyone's been. They've all come out and you know become yeah. professors. They're or, all working as university yeah. professors. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know anything about the Weathermen. That's that's one of the There's things. There's a good that documentary. You should check it out. There's a good documentary I saw a couple of years ago. I rented that that covers the whole story because they went from the Weathermen to the Weathermen Underground, and they were pretty mm. radical. Um, you, you know, but they never intended to kill anybody or hurt anybody. They only intended to blow up empty buildings, and uh, things went wrong. When yeah. did they sing "It's Raining Men"? Hmm. Or was that different, the Weather different. Girls? Well, it sounds like we, we've got plenty of things to reflect on. And those of you in literary disco land, um, we expect you to read everything we've talked about and get back to us tonight. Yes. For dinner and in my house. eat a banana because Because they're doomed. <laughs> what about onions? You got anything on onions? They How better they be okay or I'm going to be really pissed. You guys are so alarmist. Bananas are going to be fine. They're just going to be a slightly different. How are we doing on Brussels sprouts? Because I know for you guys, Brussels sprouts were big in 2012. All right, stick around, <laughs> listeners, for when we return with Elizabeth Crane to discuss We the Animals. How are we doing with, with chickens? Chickens okay? Oh, they're genetically modified, oh, so no. Yum, delicious. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Literary Disco. We have a very special guest here today. Oscar award-winning author. No, Academy Award-winning actress. Wait. How does that even make sense? We have Grammy 
winner. Go for the Grammys. Creator of that Gangnam style of dance and song. Tupac, no. We have big time famous author Elizabeth Crane with us, ladies and gentlemen. Hi, Elizabeth Crane. Hi, everyone. For those of you in Listenerville, um, uh, Elizabeth Crane goes colloquially by Betsy. Or actually, familiarly. If you know her, you call her Betsy, is what I'm trying to say. And at uh, this point, if you don't. And even if you don't. She's going to start putting um, Betsy on the front of her books just to confuse people. Uh, but Betsy and I work together at the Chevron station down on uh, Route 7. Uh, actually, <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> great benefits. Um, great people. <laughs> discount gas. Betsy and I work together at the, the University of California Riverside's uh, low residency MFA program in creative writing and writing for the performing arts. Betsy is the author of four books, three collections of short stories, and one novel. Although I really think she's written two collections of short stories and two novels, but that can be discussed. <gasps> um, oh, that's nice. I mean, I just think it's true. Um, I think it's kind of true. If it's true for Jennifer Egan, it's, it's true, true for, for you. me, right? Yeah. Uh, her latest book is We Only Know So Much, which just came out uh, a couple months ago, to wide acclaim. So her first book, When the Messenger is Hot, came out in 2002, is that correct? Am I remembering your date? 2003. And was a uh, collection of short stories. Her second book, All This Heavenly Glory, which I believe is a novel, but is a collection of short stories as well, she says. It's a novel in stories. Uh, came out shortly thereafter. And then a third collection, You Must Be This Happy to Enter, came out in 2009? Eight. Eight. 2008. Um, and if you like, uh, and I'm saying you to the listeners out there, not to Julia and Ryder, because they don't like anything good. Um, if you like... <laughs> Rude. If you like um, short fiction, um, Betsy, I think, is one of the the finest practitioners of the form and also one of the most unusual because she is willing to write stories that cross over into the most bizarre, weird Mm -hmm. things that you could possibly imagine. People who are reality show stars or... um, There's a lot of reality, yes. There's a lot of reality. People who maybe move into a closet. Um, you know, she, and Betsy writes a lot in, in odd voices. Her, her novel is in the we voice, uh, which is somewhat like We the Animals, which we'll discuss a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's some thematic, uh, though I don't believe in theme, thematic similarities to We the Animals as well in, in Betsy's book. Um, in the sense of fucked up families. Um, so, <laughs> in the sense that we're all fucked up and doomed to die. <laughs> So, thank you very much, Betsy. Give us a little bit of your personal history. Um, how, how did you end up writing short stories? How did you decide that your first book was going to be stories, or was that was that how you started your your proving ground for you? What 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 was your your genesis? I thought I was going. How, how far back do you want me to go to, like third grade, or sorry, should I just <laughs> um, some of those years? I would start after puberty. I would say after the growth of boobs. I thought that I was, you know, after I sort of got over thinking I was going to be a rock star, Broadway star, TV star, whatever, blah, 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 I decided I was going to be a, like a director, screenwriter, TV writer. And so I was focusing a lot of my efforts that way. And then very late in the game, I sort of, um, I, I started to write a novel. Basically, I wrote a novel. I got an agent from the novel. I did not sell that novel. And in the meantime, I sort of got really turned on to short stories. And I started writing short stories. And my short stories were like really obviously better than that particular novel. 
And so I was like, okay, this is my jam. And I was like, I'm going to, you know, told my agent that I was going to like put in a terms, collection together. Let me ask you an important question in terms of this is your jam. Would you say your short stories are better or worse than the song No Diggity by Blackstreet? You're going to have to sing a little bit of that for me, Todd. Because I, honestly, I don't know. Oh. Uh, Julia would, li- Julia no, would like to start. Done it. Julia? No. Okay. Herbs, the word spins the verb. That's all I'm going to do. I like the way you work it. No diggity. I'm going to bag you up. I'll go better. I'll no, go better. Yeah. All right. Go better. Right. Okay. Very well. But so, Betsy, so this, I mean, that seems like reverse of what most people do. Most people tend to yes. write stories. And yeah. then, so that's really interesting. And I bet, was your agent appalled by this <laughs> movement? Because novels make more money, right? Like, people buy I novels know. more than yeah. they buy short stories. Totally. You know, she's really nice. So she was like, and she's a big fan of my short stories. And she, you know, we got a dozen rejections for the novel. So, I mean, it was either like, okay, well, I guess she'll either drop me or we'll try this other thing. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, that that collection, like I got offers almost immediately on it. Mm. Um, cool. Yeah, and it, you know, I think that the, my takeaway from that is just that it's just about the work. You know, it's like, yeah. I mean, I don't know, the business has changed a little bit since then, but I still think there's always a place for good work, regardless of whether or not it's the form that is but popular. You, but your first book came out in sort of a weird time, and, and this is something maybe you can, I think might be interesting to listeners, is that, so your book, your first book came out sort of at the height of Chick Lit. And they kind of promoted your book as <laughs> as chick lit for smart people, like anti-chick lit. Uh, oh, my gosh. Uh, Did it have shoes on the cover? I hope not. No. 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 God, no. What, what was that like? What was what was that experience like? Because I know you have to be horribly grateful that the book is coming out, but then you're sort of lumped in this weird category of not being it, but being it. I wrote a screed about it black, back in my blogging days, about how I was, I was never going to speak the words chick lit for forever and i blocked out the letters like i see <laughs> i um because the it, the term just bugs the shit out of me um and it particularly bugged me because it's a cat you know it's a category it, a it's a category and b it's a category i don't think my work fits into really mm. at all if i may say so my only frustration was that that would that term would come up and you know usually the reviews would be like this isn't really chick lit this also isn't a pop-up book (laughs) but you were uh, you know i i think the strange thing though that it it was and and i think this actually somewhat relates to we the animals which we'll talk about in just a second but trying to pigeonhole something because of the kind of character that's in it so you had a lot of stories in your first book about a single woman trying to find love um, and dealing with life in the big city uh, and things like that which in the carrie bradshaw universe of things also equals drinking martinis and, and things like that. But you are... Except for in my book, those women are, like, alcoholics and they're depressed and they date, like, like, like bipolar, unmedicated, <laughs> other right. alcoholics. Do you right. feel like publishing a few collections of short stories helped you to develop, you know, to hone different voices before you chose a single long voice for your novel? I think so. I think so. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. You know, like there's still the overarching voice in the novel is still sort of very kind of true to what I usually do. Mm -hmm. And then each different character, you know, it's still, it's still third person, but it's, um, you know, it's close on these characters. So it sort Mm -hmm. of was a, a way in, you know, for me to get into their heads without but it uh, gave me a little distance too. I don't know if I'm saying that. 
in any kind of articulate way, but um, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think I don't I don't think I could have done it. I did, I never even thought I was going to write a novel anyway. Well, and you were writing before you, before you started to write. We only know so much. Um, you were writing something else right before, right? I was. I wrote a draft of a memoir, and four hundred pages. Although I Boy, like to wow. now call it my biography. <laughs> <laughs> but not your autobiography. Someone else wrote it. <laughs> but I basically just wrote my entire life story down and um, confused that for a memoir. But what's the difference? Well, uh, a I don't think. Anyone really cares to read the biography of Elizabeth <laughs> at this point? Um, you know, but it's it's just it was just like my there was no story. It was just my whole life. So then, are you are you still thinking about going back to the biography slash memoir? Well, now I'm starting from scratch. Yes. Oh wow! I'm starting from scratch. So I'm trying again, but it's hard. It's very hard, I think, to write nonfiction. Harder, harder than it is for you to create lives completely out of whole cloth. Totally harder. So much harder. Hmm. Interesting. Because you're revealing something about yourself. I. It's not so much the revealing part. It's the. It's the truth. It's the. It's the writing it in a, an interesting way part yeah. that I struggle mm-hmm. with. Right. Because I can take that same material it. into fiction. Yeah. I don't know when. When I know that I I can't make anything up, I feel like my writing has like gets boring really fast. Right. Even if I don't make anything up. Yeah, it's the whole like sculpting versus painting thing. You have to take away and make decisions from what's already there rather than start on a blank canvas. It's just mm-hmm. a different way of. Thinking. Well, but also my memory is kind of bad, so that. that <laughs> so then you get to make it up anyway. Yeah, you get to be vague. <laughs> Go for it. And that and you know hopefully the people that you grew up with that you're writing about. Mm-hmm. Either have the same lack of memory, or they're dead. So it works out. What are they going to do? They come to you? They're, they're going to critique your book through the Goodreads via the Ouija board. No if anyone could, them. it would be my mother. So let's just put it that way. I have a feeling that if my mother could critique me on Goodreads through the Ouija board, she absolutely would be doing it right now. Oh my God, Maybe your she mother is. and my mother. They're they're in um, angry mother heaven right now. Um, well, speaking of angry mothers, that's a good segue. Um, First good segue we've ever had. <laughs> um, the book that you selected for us, "We the Animals" by Justin Torres. What uh, what made you think this would be a good um, a good book for us to disco dance to here on the show? Um, I, I really I wasn't thinking so much about you as I was about how much I love this book, and I like to make people read things that I like. So. Mm-hmm what better place to do it um i mean that's really the truth i just and also it's short so i knew you could read it really fast but um so so tell us what you loved about the book why and how you found out about it it's not a book maybe that uh, a lot of our listeners know about really because you know it's it it was a bestseller but i don't i think honestly i think i read a review of it somewhere or somebody told me to read it read it or maybe both of those things and i I was I was waiting for the paperback to come out because I spend way too much money on books, and uh, I just gobbled it up last summer. I guess it was. I, I, there's something about it that is so kind of really simple, um, but so the writing is so beautiful and so um, evocative and so deliberate too. I think you know with the whole animal 
thread running all the way through. It's just like, it's a, and this is why I wanted to give a lecture on it because it's so, and I, and I read that he took a really long time to write this too, and probably just went over and over and over word choices, but like so many of the words tie back to animal mm -hmm. behaviors, mm -hmm. like whether it's, yeah, birds or, or, you know, all kinds of animals all throughout. And, you know, it, it's such a great parallel to brother, you know, brothers. And also it's a great parallel to this particular family of just being so kind of raw and, mm -hmm. you know, unpredictable and fending for themselves. And, you know, but there's also like, and I, but I also love that there's so much like love and heart in it too. It's just, it's got everything. Got yeah. everything, Todd. So why don't we kind of describe how this book is and what it's about? I mean, other than the animal theme. So it's it's a bunch of short chapters, and they are in narrative order. But it's not really a novel in the sense that it has an overarching plot. Right. So it's about a family of three brothers and two parents with a fraught relationship but each chapter is really just a very small, short story-like moment in this family's life. I'm very forgiving on plot when mm -hmm. it, as long if the writing is good. I do think that there is a progression there, though. I mean, the the way, yeah, I think so too. Even just the way it moves from we in the first three stories or so, mm -hmm. and then there's that story seven where our narrator turns seven years old. Oh, God, and I yeah. think that's the first uh, story mm -hmm. where he gets he uses the eye voice so there is this you know and yeah. then of course at the mm -hmm. end of the book there's you know there's a severe individuation where he's you yeah. know actually sort of separated <laughs> from his family right. but i think that i think there, there is a plot in the sense that this is a coming of age story i mean i i, I basically i don't mm -hmm. know I, I that's what i took away oh from definitely it. and and also you get this backstory of the parents really clearly i mean it turns out that she had the kids when she was 14 right is that true so she yeah. can't be more than 24 four yeah. 25 yeah. now with these three kids and there's all this economic hardship there's obvious abuse going on i mean there's lots of stories happening yeah. mm -hmm. it's just you're right it's not plotted the way we think of you know a novel having a plot where this leads to this to this these yeah. are sort of fragmentary poetic yeah beautiful and precise moments in this frenzy of i think i, I mean how old is the character when the book ends the, the narrator do you guys I, think he's still pretty young? I'd say mid-teens. So it's, he's not 18 it yet. No, it only okay. covers no, like... No, I'd say like 14 or 15. Like, it only covers like eight yeah. years, I think, something like that. It's not very wow. long. Um, yeah. But the the story seven itself, I think, is my favorite. Oh, me too. Yeah, yeah. I think but it's the best. <laughs> it's my all... absolute favorite section. There's... Um, there's a wonderful, horrible line. Now that you're seven, you'll leave me, I believe is what it is. When you boys turned seven, you left me. Shut yourselves off from me. That's what big boys do, what even sev what seven-year-olds do. And then the little boy says, I won't. Um, and, uh, you know, not, not to be too terribly upsetting, but <laughs> I, I remember really specifically, and this, this story had a, a powerful impact on me because I remember vividly when I was a little kid and my mom was sick and crazy, and I was maybe all of eight years old, her saying to me, you'll never leave me, right? You won't be the one man who leaves me. Oh, you'll no. Never leave me. I remember like it was yesterday when I read it in here, I was like, Jesus Christ, um, was he living in my house? <laughs> wow. Um, right. And so what seems like a horrible fictional moment to me was like, holy shit, 
someone else has had that experience. And then I realized there's a thousand women who've said that to their children, millions of women who have said that to their children. And it's such a simple, powerful, awful line that I, like at that, at the end of reading that section of the book, I had to put the book down and decide: Do I want to keep reading this? <laughs> but yeah, but the but the mo- the moments of beauty in this yeah, book, they're incredible. This family are mm-hmm. crushing yeah. too. Yeah, hey, I was reminded, and this is a weird thing to be reminded of, but I was reminded of the movie Tree of Life. Did you guys see this? Oh, um, I haven't actually that, watched it. Cool. It had the same quality of like very very specific moments but they're so short and sort of immediate that they become universal and Mm -hmm. bigger than just so like in tree of life there's lots of sort of boys coming of age scenes between brothers where they're like shooting guns or killing Mm -hmm. frogs or like doing all these things and you never know narratively where that all adds up you know it doesn't necessarily make a plot but as like a guy watching it, I was like, this is my childhood. It was like, I completely (laughs) connected with all these Mm -hmm. like bizarre fractured moments. And I felt the same way reading this book. I was like, Oh my God, this is what, this is what it was like being a brother. I remember this. I remember punching each other and like these crazy intense moments of like emotion that don't really go anywhere, add up to anything or, you know, but then they do, they, they, they mean something to you and they're so evocative. It really captures, you know, the feeling of, large moments happening when they aren't necessarily large moments in your life. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. not a wedding or a birth or whatever, but you know, when children really realize the bigness of, Mm -hmm. you know, the moment, it's really powerful. And you know, when, when we're living our lives, we don't feel exactly where we are in the plot of our lives. Totally. This, uh, these stories really evoke that and it's really, um, smart the way he weaves the plot in, or not the plot, but like, you know, for example, there's one story where where they, his father brings home a truck Mm -hmm. and his mother demands that he bring back the truck the next day, but he convinces her that let's just have this one beautiful night with the truck and the we learn later that they, of course they did keep the truck, but the story stands out on its own as if it were the one night that they were keeping the, it's probably Mm -hmm. the clearest example of this, but it doesn't say like, and then we kept the truck, you know, because that's so (laughs) beside the point. (laughs) The point is how did it feel to sit in this truck shooting down stars Mm -hmm. with your Nerf guns, Mm -hmm. you know, and Mm -hmm. it is so intelligently structured like that. It just really evoked that childhood feeling. The one thing that I really like um, that he does, the story after Seven, The Lake, um, which is a wonderful and awful story also uh, about being taught how to swim, but also this sort of cataclysmic moment between uh, parents that actually somewhat reminded me of uh, a Juno Diaz story. Um, but what he, he has these wonderful opening lines that have such subtextual double meanings. The opening line to the lake is, one unbearable night in the middle of a heat wave, pops drove us, drove us all to the lake. And in, in the scope of Great for Signs, it doesn't mean much, but in a book filled with, with unbearable nights in this family, <laughs> that this is one unbearable night. And it's, it has less to do about what was truly unbearable, which was the relationships in the family, but just had to do with the heat making everyone crazy. Um, it, 
it, it asks so much of the reader. It asks the reader to both carry the weight of what is bearable and unbearable to these characters and also the simple narrative description of what the weather was like, which I think is mm-hmm. a very delicate thing for a writer to do. I was reminded in the lake of the Gino Diaz short story, um, uh, Fiesta 1980. I don't know if any of you read that. Um, and I was reminded a lot of Gino Diaz in general reading this, of his first collection, mm-hmm. Drown. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if, if uh, Justin Torres is a fan of his. I, and I think a lot of people are fans of his. But in Fiesta 1980, it's about a, a little boy who they're going to a party. But it also tells the backstory of this little boy figuring out that his father is seeing another woman and this car trip and all this other stuff. But it's, it's about those frozen moments that contain, like Julia was saying, all this other crap of life that only when you're in therapy and paying a significant copay do you have to parse that moment and say, oh, shit, that was a really fucked up situation that a, a good parent wouldn't want a child to be a part of, you know? I was, but, I mean, on the flip side, and this is the, you know, inherent divide between Todd and I, the beauty of every situation. So another story that mm-hmm. I really liked was The Trench, where the father digs a trench in the backyard mm-hmm. and all this stuff happens. It's beautifully written. And there's all this conflict at it, but at the end, we don't know how it was resolved or anything because we only had this one kid's point of view. And it's just this beautiful image of him lying in this trench and the rest of the family laughing at him. And it's, you know, it's exactly the reverse of what you're saying as well, Todd. It's that, you know, even in the shittiest scenario, you know, people are going to find, you know, beauty or humor or whatever. Yeah, and that's not a divide between us. I agree yeah. with you. I, I think the divide between <laughs> us primarily has to do with Les Mis. I think that would be the divide between okay. us. Wow. <laughs> you are bringing in a lot of other crap to this discussion. Why you gotta bring up old shit? What's up? <laughs> what, what were you gonna say, Betsy? I mean, this, this person's story is really different than mine, but it's so easy to connect with because I think so many of us have those kind of beautiful and awful moments in our childhood, and we love our parents that are inconsistent and and i think too like i was thinking also about how you know something todd was saying was making me think about how um you know if you're a halfway intelligent child you're conscious of the fact that this is not like this is you know you're you're sort of like observing these things that are happening um and you know that they're not quite Right, but you also, it's all you know, and so it's, you're just kind of, like, making these notes. I mean, that was my experience as a kid, and it mm-hmm. seemed like, it seemed like this guy was, like, making mental notes when he was a kid. <laughs> okay, can I, can I be negative and, and just, I'll, I'll yes. pose my negative sweeping generalization uh, just for the oh, sake Oh, good, of yeah, discussion. let's get that out. <laughs> because something did happen while I was reading this. I was reminded of, first of all, I did love this book, but, but here's my problem. I was reminded of, do you guys remember Sandra Cisneros and yes. uh, The House on Mango Street? Yes. Or Mango Street, yes. I don't know how to pronounce it. Okay. Well, it's a great book, and it's somewhat similar in some ways, I think, to this book. It's been a long time since I read it. And I feel like in the late 90s, early 2000s, there was a bunch of books that were structured in this certain way. And this one reminded me of them. And I started hmm. thinking, is this a trick? And the trick is you pick a you know, or in his case, he probably is from a family similar to this, so I don't, you know, but as a writer, you pick a, like, a sort of, a terrible family situation, an awful abusive family, a poor family, 
a family that has race issues, whatever, and you select all these these big, huge, big story problems. Mm-hmm. You remove all those problems from the the forefront of your writing, and you instead write a very simple, childlike point of view that's like kind of faux naive into that situation. And then, as a reader, we read this and we go, "Oh my God, there's a lot going on here." Beyond, beyond what this kid has seen, but you never as a writer actually have to write or address those issues. You just sort of skim the surface of them and the reader gets to pat themselves on the back for like, oh, that mom is really messed up and the, the dad's clearly abusive, but we never actually develop a story. We never have to go into any of those issues. We just sort of pat ourselves on the back as readers for seeing them through the child's eyes. But actually as a writer, if you if just the, the biggest creative act is to pull back from these issues and to obfuscate them and put glasses on, you know, this sort of child, like, you know, so we never see through them. Do you guys see where I'm getting at? Like that in a way it's kind of manipulative and it's kind of a trick. I see what you're saying, but I don't necessarily agree with you. Um, because I think uh, here, here's the thing is that I think if, if Justin Torres showed too much of the abuse or too much of the crazy, it becomes a too familiar of a story. Um, I think mm-hmm. right. that we know those tropes already. And the fact that abuse and, and madness are tropes now is, you know, probably issue for another episode in and of itself. Right. <laughs> um, but, you know, what the, the last thing you want to do is to make your novel feel like a lifetime movie. And I think it can very right. easily slide into that. So you almost have to leave it to the reader to just assume the worst. Otherwise, it's pages and pages of, you know, uh, of stuff that we're already familiar with. And that... To be frank, you can enjoy more probably in a memoir. You know, you can go mm-hmm. read right. running. Well, I wouldn't necessarily read Running with Scissors, but uh, so a Running with Scissors like the book. Liars Club or The Glass Castle. Yeah, you can yeah, you can go I read think- Mary Carr. I, I, or Angela's Ashes or whatever. Right. right. I mean, writer, my my feeling on that is well, two things. One. Um, Here's my confession. I was actually a little disappointed when I realized how fucked up the family was. I would have mm-hmm. loved this book equally without that. Um, I cut. See, that's kind of what yeah. I'm getting at because I and, agree with that. I wanted to know more about these characters without it being like poverty and abuse porn, which is kind of what I started to feel like it was becoming. <laughs> no, but you know what I'm talking yeah, about, I like do know what you mean. where yeah. you start feeling like. Oh, they're going into this basement with this guy. What's going to happen? And you're like, what is the video that they're watching? Yeah. And then it's never described. So you're like, okay, okay. But you still have to keep reading. And I started to feel like, why am I? Yeah, I think that the, the, the situation that the characters are in is really beside the point. And the point to me is right. the writing and the voice of the group voice, which I... You know, I, I think it's beautiful because uh, this, to me, I don't really like the we voice very often, but I think it pretty much only works in siblings or families because you really feel there's no larger power of the we than the mm-hmm. family. Right. But anyway, right. my, my other feeling, though, Ryder, is like you're saying, well, you know, you're not really writing it if you're not writing it head on in some way, but what would be more really writing it than showing it through the eyes of, you know, another member of a family? Speaking totally. of the abuse mm-hmm. and everything, totally right. you know, like he's right. to watch this kid, you know, absorb this information is to me 20 times more interesting than yeah. the story itself. Mm. What do you think, right. Betsy? Well, I, you know, it's interesting because I think that some of this, like, sort of that sort of idea about, like, 
abuse or or any kind of like shocking aspect of someone's life. This is part of the uh, the discussion that's going around the internet right now with all the nonfiction stuff. The argument is sort of like, oh, you know, anybody can sell or write a book, you know, just by sort of throwing that like horrible stuff on the page without, you know, really kind of generosity, the generosity that's necessary that, you know, that you want to, you want to have, you want there to be some insight to it and mm-hmm. you want, you know, the right, you want there to be a reason for it and not just sort of like, uh, I don't know, James Fry always comes to mind. Well, and I, I, I think of someone though, like Augustine Burroughs, I, I read, we had him out um, here to talk for the series that we do. I interviewed him, so I read all of his books, and they were entertaining, but I also at some point felt like he didn't have any more stories to tell. So now mm-hmm. he was just like, well, here's something else that I did that was fucked up. Um, yeah, right. you know. And so maybe his original story was interesting, but the subsequent ones were, you know, he was looking for something to talk about in his life that was fascinating. It, it turned out it wasn't that fascinating. Um, so the, uh, there, there is that weird element, but I think that lives more in nonfiction. You're right, Betsy, than it does than it does in fiction. But I mean, I understand what you're saying, writer. But I also think, um, in the end, you got to trust the reader. Also, I mean, I, I think that's this book is only 112 pages long. It could be longer. He could write it longer mm-hmm. if he wanted to, certainly, um, and fill in some of that stuff. But then I think you lose a little bit of the elegance of the writing itself. Um, mm-hmm. And, again, I, I, I sort of felt more like I was reading a short story collection, that you could yeah. actually read these out of order and it wouldn't make much of a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that way, I, I really appreciate it. And I didn't read it like a novel where I was, you know, you know flipping pages. I, was, I read it really slowly, as slow as you can read a 112-page novel. I, I don't know. I thought it was definitely a novel. Like, I took it away as, I mean, I like, I think with each I one... I read def- it like a novel, too. Yeah, I mean, I think there's enough of an arc there... And, I mean, I think we should talk about the ending and maybe just warn our listeners that there's a little bit of a spoiler. Mm-hmm. Not a little bit. There's a huge spoiler coming up. I, 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 I can't wait for his second novel or his second story, and I hope that he picks up some of the threads from this one because, to me, it was a lot like um, Portrait of the Artist as a young man, James Joyce, mm-hmm. Joyce's first book, in that it was like, you know, it's a... Is it a building's roman? Is that what it's called when it's a, mm-hmm. a, a, a only, novel about a young man coming of age as an artist? Only if and you're I mean, really pretentious the, are you allowed to say that. Right, great. <laughs> oh, but it definitely, like, the last the last two stories, I guess, mm-hmm. where, you know, he says, The Night I Am Made is the name of the story, and right. it's about, you know, the all these forces that we've been reading about that he puts himself in, the we, which is his brother's, mm-hmm. his you know, messed up family. He's breaking away from them, and those those things that in, in a lot of these other stories we've seen as positive, like his brother's support for him and the fact that they're this unit, suddenly become suffocating, awful, abusive, you know, things that are holding him down from becoming an artist. And uh, this question of sexuality, which mm-hmm. becomes huge and sort of you took me by surprise. I didn't, oh, really? you know, see that com- Yeah, I didn't see that coming at all, and I was like oh, wow, this is a book about, you know, separating yourself from the we of your family and the the we of your brothers and your father, especially when you're you're dealing with issues of sexuality. Well, and there's that great line. It, it's it, This is, a, I think, an example of sort of his elegance as a writer where um, I don't, I, I read it on my e-books, I can't tell you the exact page, but he says, and me now, look at me, see me there with them in the snow, both inside and outside their understanding. And that's yeah. the sort of sentence that can 
it can seem ponderous, I think, in another work, but because of that lead up, because of the it being a novel, um, you're ready for that sort of pronouncement also, I think. And right. it, it doesn't feel ponderous. If he said that in the first portion of the book, it would feel, you know, it would feel odd. But I, at that moment, I was ready for it. I'm ready for that breaking away. And me now. Mm-hmm. What a great sentence. And me now, you know? Yeah. There's another great line in a totally different story, but it's the beginning of the end. It's um, when the kid shows up and shows them the gay porn. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is when I realized what was happening. Um, uh, he said, not the gay porn part, just the narrative arc ending. So he said, we still ran thick, Manny up front making rules and Joel to break all of them and me keeping the peace as best I could, which sometimes meant nothing more than falling down to my knees and covering my head with my arms and letting them swing and cuss until they got tired or bored or remorseful. They called me a faggot, a pest, left me black and blue, but they were gentler with me than they were with each other. And everyone in the neighborhood knew they'd bleed for me. My brothers had bled for me. And then this headbanger swooped in with his hiya fellas and tore us open and thinned what was thick. Mm. And that mm. was just like a slam of the, oh, God, this, yeah. the we the we is over. It's <laughs> <laughs> the the so funny because I, I didn't get where that was going at all. And, like, <laughs> that's why I think it functions as a novel really well. It's because, like, especially the story, the Niagara Falls story, mm-hmm. I was like, what yeah. is this all about? I was like this father-son road trip story and, like, him dancing and his dad saying he was pretty. And I was like, what? I just, I totally was slow to catch up. And then I was like, oh, right. Right. I like the way your mouth is. But but it was good. It was really, I thought that was perfectly plotted, you know, because it does, you know, it sneaks up on this character. And um, yeah. I think that that's wonderful. I, I think the the ending itself, the the last chapter, which is all of um, about eighty four words, um, you know, I think I think it's hard. We talked earlier about the there is a very clear theme here of uh, a relation to animals. I think it's sometimes you can you can hit a nail too hard with this with these illusions. And I will admit that at the end of the the last section there that was the only time I was like okay I, I get it with the animals yeah <laughs> I didn't I, get I, it with the I animals. didn't like All it right, enough of the animals I hated, <laughs> I hated that last page I hated it so much I've read it like three times and I'm like I I would so much rather you just not even have that chapter mm-hmm. or or actually write more in the same style that you have yeah. been to, to suddenly become all allegory or yes. whatever it is going I, on in that is just too much. Like I, I thought the book could end at the end of the, st- the chapter right before it, uh, which their last mm-hmm. line, line is, look, they're opening doors, they're stepping out, here they go. That's a great last sentence. What, what, did, what did you think, Betsy, of the, the last section? Of- I think you're 100% right. Yeah, for sure. So who was his editor? Come on. <laughs> we, we need to get Torres on the line and talk him through this. <laughs> I know you got praised by everyone called Best Book of the Year, but God damn it, we have a page we don't like, you bastard. <laughs> One page. I felt that this book truly gave insight into the life of boys and packs of boys. Um, and I just want to point that out. You know, I'm, yeah. I have a brother, but we grew up in a family... You know, you could write this reverse book, uh, We the Animals, about girls, and, you know, he would be the lone, you know, young male presence in the reverse scenario. But um, I just think it's really beautifully done. It explains and forgives and really depicts 
young, rough boys in a really beautiful way. Mm-hmm. I agree. I think so, too. I agree. Well, Betsy, thanks for having us read uh, We the Animals by Justin Torres. I, I absolutely loved it, apart from the last 47 words. Um, and, <laughs> I did, too. Uh, it was on my best of the list, as listeners will remember from uh, from two weeks ago. And I, I'm sort of fascinated with Justin Torres now. I've, I've started searching out other things that he has written. I'm hoping that his next thing is a is a giant, great, big 500-page novel, because I want to... I wanna, I want to fall yeah. into his world some more. He's young, so, you know. How young? How old is this guy? I don't think he's 30 yet. Oh, that bastard. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I, maybe he is. I don't know. But I think he's... No, I don't think he's 30 yet. Oh, hmm. You know what I was doing when I wasn't 30? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. That yeah, is not such true bullshit. Hadn't you already published, like, two novels by the time you were uh, 30? I had, yes, that's correct. Yeah, okay. so they were, shut up. They were good. <laughs> I'm, uh, he was I'm born in 1980. Oh, for Christ's sake. You know what I was doing in 1980? I was playing with Star Wars action figures on my bed because I had a crazy mother who was mean to me. I, my closest friend at that time was a Luke Skywalker doll. For listeners, you, you must go out and, uh, and buy Elizabeth Crane's latest book, We Only Know So Much, and all of her previous books. I am a huge fan of hers. I was a huge fan of hers before I knew her. And now that I know her, I'm an even bigger fan because she's, she's the salt of the earth, kids. I mean, <laughs> in my book, there's, there's Gandhi, um, who I love, love Gandhi, um, uh, Mr. Pibb, creator of the soft drink, and then Elizabeth Crane. Wow. Top yeah. three. That's my top three. It takes the salt of the earth to know the salt of the earth. It's two it's Tupac, Biggie, and Betsy. In my <laughs> I think my, that's something you'll hear a lot of people saying. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, Betsy. thanks for having yeah, me. Great pick. So, yeah. And a so great pick. It. It's such a good book. Yay, yeah. I win. <laughs> Definitely. That's it for episode 21 of Literary Disco. Join us in two weeks when we discuss the Hardy Boys. You can follow us on Twitter at Literary Disco and like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash literary disco. Thanks for listening.